You guys aren't tired, are you? (laughs) It's day one. (laughs) My name is Michael Suarez. It's my privilege to be the director of Rare Book School and to welcome you to this, the first of a series of 10 summer lectures. We are extremely grateful to the Harrison Institute and the Albert and Shirley Small Special Collections for the use of this space over our summer course of of lectures. Um, So thank you very much indeed. Um, I'll say it at the beginning. For my money, Steve Carrion is probably the best young bibliographical mind in the United States working today. No pressure, Steve. (laughs) We've known each other for about 15 years, I think. And um, Steve was a student of of Howard Weinbrod and of Philip Harth at uh, the University of Wisconsin, two truly great scholars. But we were just sitting here, and I said, so did you learn your bibliography from Philip Harth? And he said, actually, I learned it here. So um, if that's true, and I hope it is, um, then, then this young superstar is, uh, is one of our best products. He's uh, had research fellowships and scholarly editing fellowships from the National Endowment for the Humanities, visiting research fellowship um, from Trinity College Dublin, Long Room, um, from the American Society for 18th Century Studies, Um, from the Aaron Price Center for Swift Studies, where he also won the Richard Rodino Prize for his scholarship. Um, How does a man like this start? Well, he goes to a great place like Oberlin College to start with. And then he goes to Wisconsin, and he happens to be the Goldschmidt Fellow at Rare Book School, and that helps too. Um, Steve is perhaps best known for this book, Jonathan Swift in Print and Manuscript. And I'd I'd like to read to you just a little bit to show you what this book does. This is from the conclusion of his book. I won't read for more than 25 minutes. (laughs) I hope that this discussion of print and manuscript throughout Swift's career will be of value for studying the interaction between the two media in the early 18th century more generally. My interest in textual study from its inception owes much to the field known as history of the book, which has made many important contributions to literary study over the past decades. But in practice, this approach has tended to emphasize print culture, as if manuscript circulation had ceased in 1700, or thereafter was only an aberration. Throughout my research, I have become more and more convinced that any textual study of 18th century works needs to consider manuscript as well as its complicated intersection with print. And then he goes on to talk about the ways that book history and manuscript studies and bibliography have been siloed off from each other. 
and how his aim in the book has been to join them up again. And this he did with stunning success. But Steve Carrion is himself not a double threat, but a triple threat, because he's also working on a very large digital project. In addition to co-editing with James Woolley, um, the complete poems of Jonathan Swift, about 1,700 poems, um, he's also co-editor of the Swift Poems Project, an enormous website. We were talking earlier, and, and he's looked at about 25,000 instantiations of individual Swift poems, so those 1,700 poems and about 25,000 different manuscript instantiations. Swift dies in 1745. Steve is looking at every swift poetic manuscript known to exist in the world up to 1824. That's remarkable. So here's a scholar who's bridging the world of print and manuscript in a powerful way, but is also one of the most digitally savvy scholars working in the field. He does manuscript, he does print, and he does the, does the digital domain. He does so with insightfulness and with grace. Steve Carrion. Thank you, Michael. Uh, I just wanted to get the lights in the front dimmed down just a little bit so this is crystal clear. Perfect, thank you. I'm delighted to be back at Rare Book School, and I'm honored to speak to you this evening. When I arrived at Rare Book School 15 years ago, I had no formal training in bibliography. But I did have curiosity and a willingness to learn, and here I was given the extraordinary opportunity of learning from David Gantz, Richard Noble, and Terry Bellinger. I am grateful to them for the knowledge and training they bestowed on me, because without that knowledge and training, I could not have had the success that I have had and would not have had the good fortune of speaking to you today. The title of my talk perhaps suggests that my remarks will be vague and abstract, which seems anathema to the bibliographical instinct of focusing closely on concrete particulars. I will, in fact, ground my discussion in a specific example, an example that speaks to broad concerns that I hope are of interest to all of us. As I discuss this example, I will examine various print and online bibliographical tools. These tools allow us to discover information about the printing and publishing of early printed books, locate copies of these books, and view digital images of these copies. These tools are fundamental to humanistic scholarship, and so we should be interested in determining how useful they are and how they could be improved. We also need to consider not only what has been gained with the shift toward online resources, but also what has been lost. My talk is thus about the current and future states of bibliography as they relate to the digital medium, specifically about the uses and limitations of current online tools. My remarks, I think, are as much about bibliography in the digital age in the digital age as they are about the digital age 
in bibliographies. Given these broad concerns, it is appropriate that the origin of my talk stems not from my research, but from my teaching. I stumbled across the following example when preparing to introduce the rudiments of descriptive bibliography in a research methods class for graduate students in English. I was thus doing my small part of transmitting to others the learning I had acquired at Rare Book School. I had assigned a useful book entitled An Introduction to Bibliographical and Textual Studies by William Proctor Williams and Craig S. Abbott. The authors included a sample bibliographical description from W.W. Gregg's Bibliography of the English Printed Drama to the Restoration. The sample description was for a 1635 mask entitled The Temple of Love by Inigo Jones and William Davenant. My goal was to help the students understand how to read and learn from a bibliographical description, especially when they did not have a copy of the book in front of them. To place you in the position my students and I were in, I will examine parts of Greg's description in some depth. Now, I don't have time to talk about everything in this description, but I wanted, and thank goodness, probably you're thinking, but I wanted you to glance at it in its entirety so that you have a general sense of the rich detail it contains, which is presumably why Williams and Abbott chose to reprint it. I will highlight three things in this description that I will return to at various points in my talk. The first is Greg's transcription of the title page, which indicates that there were two states. Greg explains that the object of the change was apparently to give greater prominence to Davidon's name, which in the original setting was in smaller type than Jones's. As Greg shows, that change perhaps required condensing such that the O-U-R in surveyor became O-R and the two uses of majesties were truncated using superscript. The second thing I will highlight is the statement of collation. As was normal with separately published plays of this period, the format is quarto and the leaves are unnumbered. The play was printed on three and a half sheets of paper but on 13 rather than 14 leaves because leaf B4 was canceled. Greg explains the reason for the cancel. The leaf B4 was evidently meant to be canceled, although it appears to be present in the majority of copies. The sheet had already been printed off when it was discovered that the entry of a Persian page had been omitted on B4. Oops. That's my oops, it's not Greg's. (laughs) The composition of sheet C was therefore begun so as to connect with B3 verso and the matter originally filling the two pages of B4 was reset with the addition and a slight consequential alteration. The third and last part of Greg's description that I want to highlight is his list of copies that indicates which copies contain the first or second state of the title page, and which copies contain the canceled leaf before. 
Greg lists 11 copies, six of them with the first state of the title page and five with the second state. For the copies that Greg lists in his bibliography, he examined only English copies. And so the absence of detail for the American copies does not necessarily mean that leaf B4 is missing in those copies. As we can see, the British Museum copy with the second state of the title page is missing leaf B1. So these three aspects of Greg's description offered much for me to introduce to my students. I could inform them about variant states of a title page and the nature of cancellation and what might have motivated these changes, giving equal billing to a co-author in one instance and remedying the omission of a stage direction in the other. I could also show how a bibliographical description such as Greg's could direct researchers to specific copies and inform them about the precise contents of those copies. As I continued to research the bibliographical knowledge concerning this book, I discovered much more. Far too much to share with my students at the time, but which I hope will be of interest to you. Since I did not have immediate access to a copy of this particular edition, I chose the next best thing, which was a digital reproduction of a copy found in Chadwick Healy's early English books online known as Ebo. The bibliographical information that Ebo offers, especially when compared to Greg's description, is quite minimal and sometimes inaccurate. The title page transcription normalizes capitalization, italics, and the long S. Line breaks and related hyphenation are ignored, as are the presence of rules. These differences mainly stem from differing approaches to title page transcription. Greg offers a quasi-facsimile transcription, and Ebo presents a simplified transcription advocated by David Foxen, among others. Both are valid approaches and have their supporters. Foxen has argued that the purpose of a quasi-facsimile title page transcription was to enable the viewer, the, the, the reader, to visualize the appearance of a title page. If he is correct, then it makes sense that a more minimal approach would be adopted by a resource such as Ebo that contains digital images. But no supporter of either approach would accept errors or inconsistencies. The letter U has been substituted for the letter V in Queens, although other Ebo records retain the letter V in these kinds of instances. So Ebo's transcription policy is not being consistently followed. A user might therefore wonder if most copies have the U rather than the V. Also, the period after the Temple of Love has been mistakenly omitted, perhaps because that period is not entirely visible in the images created for Ebo. We can see that the Ebo record is based on the second state of the title page. Note the OR in surveyor and the mates that appear twice. Uh, the absence of superscript here adds some unintentional humor. <laughs> the absence of superscript poses another problem with the collational statement since the distinction between the four-leaf gathering of B and leaf 
before is obscured. Perhaps more significantly, we're told about the cancellation of leaf before, but not why it was canceled. Nor are we told why there is a variant title page. The publication date is given as 1634, even though Greg had noted that the dates on the title follow the legal reckoning with the year beginning on March 25. With the year starting on January 1, the year of performance and publication would be 1635, not 1634. The Ebo description refers to Greg and draws from his bibliography, but it presumes that you, the user already knows what the reference to Greg means. We're told that the images are from a British library copy, but we're not told which one. As you'll recall, Greg had listed two copies in the then British Museum, one with the first state of the title page and one with the second state. Possibly the copy filmed and then digitized for Ebo is the one with the second state, but we can't be certain based on this description, since, unlike in Greg, no shelf mark is indicated. So from Greg's description to this digital record, there has been a significant loss and distortion of detail regarding bibliographical significance. As a result, users of Evo, especially beginning users, would be misled on a number of matters unless they already had Greg's bibliography at hand. The real benefit of Evo, of course, is its vast collection of digital images, but that benefit is lessened when the images are accompanied by incomplete and misleading information. After downloading the image files from Evo, I could verify that the title page was indeed of the second state, just as Evo's citation record had suggested. As with most British Museum copies, the shelf mark is written on the title page, but it is difficult to make out. As is often the case, the original microfilms, rather than the digital images, allow one to read this kind, to see this kind of detail. And in the microfilm I checked, one can easily read the shelf mark that Greg had indicated for the British Museum copy with the second state of the title page. Of course, this means that the Ebo copy lacks not only leaf B4, but also leaf B1. The Ebo record does not refer to the absence of leaf B1. The images from Ebo were generated from the microfilm set of early English books, which means that decades ago a decision was made to film the British Museum copy with 12 leaves rather than the other British Museum copy with 14 leaves. Why film the incomplete copy rather than the complete one? Was the complete copy so fragile that it couldn't be filmed? I don't know, but that's possible. It's also possible that those organizing the filming had not bothered to check Greg's bibliography. It's unfortunate that of the 11 copies that Greg had listed, this copy was the worst one to have been filmed and then digitized. Elsewhere, I have found similar problems that plague other textual di uh, digital text bases, many of which seem to have selected copies on a completely arbitrary basis. And sometimes, as in this instance, 
that arbitrariness means that users are unable to read the entire work. There was another problem with the images of this copy in Ebo. Greg had noted that this edition contained 13 unnumbered leaves, and we know that the copy chosen for Ebo contained 12 leaves. We would therefore expect that when we look at, when we look through these digital images, we would find 12 recto pages, but in fact we find only 10. So what happened? Without a physical copy in front of us, we can rely only on the digital images and Greg's description. Because Greg had noted the catchwords between gatherings, we can use that information along with the signatures on the rectos to figure out what happened. What we discover is that the images go from B2 verso and B3 recto to C1 verso and C2 recto. Now we know that leaf B4 is not present, so that should make us ask what happened to B3 verso and C1 recto. A physical book cannot have one side of a leaf, <laughs> but not the other side. We all know this. The answer is that either in the process of filming or in digitizing, these facing pages were skipped. And a similar problem occurs in the next set of images, because we go from C1 verso and C2 recto to C3 verso and C4 recto, thereby skipping C2 verso and C3 recto. This explains why a copy with 12 recto pages has only 10 in the digital images. This puzzle, especially because it occurs right around a lost leaf and a canceled leaf, would be difficult to unravel without some bibliographical training and access to Greg's description. Having Greg's statement of collation and his record of catchwords and the ability to apply that knowledge allows us to interpret these digital images in a way that Ebo's record does not. And this is an important point because digital images, just like the physical books they derive from, often require bibliographical interpretation. I think that point is often obscured by the easy availability of digitized images of particular copies of books. This example also illustrates something bibliographers and textual critics know all too well, which is that at every stage of transmission, that every stage of transmission offers opportunities for textual degeneration. But each stage also offers opportunities for textual correction. So far, I've been referring to the Ebo images I downloaded over six years ago. In the process of preparing for this talk, I discovered that Ebo had replaced the earlier set of digital images with a set that now contains the missing pages. So the Ebo images now contain all the pages from this copy. And this updated set of images shows that all the pages had in fact been filmed, but some were inadvertently skipped 
in the digitizing process. A check of the microfilm confirmed that was the case. Now, about three years ago, I mentioned, I mentioned the missing images from this particular item to Michael Suarez. So I wonder if he worked his influential magic on ProQuest to get them to fix the images. Whether he did or not, it was one step forward and one step back. Because the quality of the new images on the right is inferior to that of the old on the left. The shelf mark on the title page is even more illegible. And the aspect ratio of the images, of the new images, which were not good to begin with, has been made even worse, such that the pages are narrower and the text is scrunched up, as if we were watching a movie adapted for a smaller television set that makes the actors appear to be a lot taller and skinnier than they really were. Thus, in the new set of images, the dimensions of the leaf suggest that the book's format was octavo rather than quarto. Ebo, as many of you know, is a commercial text base, and thus its use is restricted to those with institutional access, access that does not come cheap. But the English short title catalog, abbreviated as ESTC, is freely available at the British Library's website. The ESTC aspires to catalog all printed matter, excluding certain classes of ephemera, prior to 1801 that was either published in English-speaking localities or in the English language anywhere. The ESTC is a collection of bibliographical data only. It does not contain digital images, but external links to those images are being added. The acronym ESTC originally referred to the 18th century short title catalog, but the catalog has been expanded to encompass books from earlier periods that had been catalog, cataloged in the Pollard and Redgrave short title catalog for books before 1641 and Donald Wing's catalog for books from 1641 to 1700. The play I've been talking about was published in 1635, and so it was cataloged by Pollard and Redgrave. As with other entries in the original short title catalog, the information is minimal because the editors did not intend to present a bibliographical description or even a full transcription of the title page. When we turn to the fuller record in the online ESTC, which I've condensed slightly, we find that it represents an improvement over the EBO record, though it again falls short of what Greg had assembled. In fact, to refer to the ESTC record as an improvement over the EBO record seems justified since the ESTC records for this item and others from before 1641 are probably based on EBO records. According to Peter Blaney, who probably knows more about the bibliography of English drama from this period than anyone else living, the untrustworthy EBO descriptions, whose collations and statements of pagination and or foliation are often inaccurate, were the primary source of most of the pre-1641 records in ESTC. Fortunately, in this instance, the ESTC fixes some of the mistakes in the EBO record and fills in some of the gaps. 
For the title page transcription, the period after the Temple of Blood was restored. The year of 1635 is indicated, as is the precise date of the play's performance. The format of quarto is noted. But some problems persist. That U in Queens, for example. One might assume that the ESTC followed a policy of modernization, but similar uses of V are often retained in the ESTC. As with Ebo, the ESTC tells us that a British library copy has been filmed and consequently digitized. The L is the symbol for the British Library, but it does not tell us which British Library copy. Knowing that would be especially helpful because the ESTC cites two British Library copies in addition to the two Greg had referenced. This pattern of offering minimal information about which copy has been reproduced is common to many online bibliographical resources, EBO and the ESTC included. And this pattern adds to the mistaken idea that when we look at digital images, we're looking at the edition. But what we're looking at, as I hope my previous remarks have made clear, is a digital reproduction of microfilmed images of a particular copy that was probably selected in an arbitrary manner. That sentence should appear as a warning label <laughs> for users of digital text bases. We should therefore encourage, cajole, lobby, and plead with those who manage these online resources to specify the copy that is the source of the digital images. The ESTC should link a particular copy to a set of digital images to remind us that we are looking at a reproduction of only one copy of an edition and sometimes an incomplete and non-representative copy of that edition. Now the listing of copies, in fact, is the one aspect where the ESTC improves on Greg's account. The ESTC lists 15 copies to Greg's 11. Nonetheless, two of Greg's copies are not listed in the ESTC. To get a fuller account of copies, I consulted the major printed and online resources, specifically the original short title catalog from 1926, volume two of Greg's bibliography, the National Union catalog, pre-1956 imprints, the revised short title catalog from 1976, the ESTC, COPAC, which is the online catalog for major libraries in the UK, and OCLC, or WorldCat, as it is also known. I admit at the outset that I was comparing apples and oranges, since the National Union catalog is for American libraries only, and COPAC is for UK libraries only. Also, OCLC is usually not strong for books published this early. Finally, neither Greg nor the compilers of the short title catalog tried to assemble a complete listing of copies. Therefore, at the outset, we would expect the ESTC, which aspires to be a union catalog of pre-1801 English books, to, to list the greatest number of copies. And indeed, I found that to be the case, as can be seen in this table. The original STC lists eight copies, Greg lists 11, 
The National Union Catalog lists seven American copies. The revised STC lists 12. The ESTC lists 15. COPAC lists seven in the UK. And OCLC lists six, the fewest number. The total number of copies represented in all these resources is 19. I have tried to verify the current status of every copy represented here using each library's online catalog, but I've not always been successful. If we consulted printed resources only, the top four rows, we would find a total of 16 copies. If we consulted online resources only, the bottom three rows, we would find a total of 18 copies, all but three of which are in the ESTC, which highlights the comparatively limited value of COPAC and OCLC. Indeed, if we consulted all of the sources, with the exception of COPAC and OCLC, we would find all the copies referenced here. Each copy is listed in more than one source, with the exception of two copies listed only in the ESTC. But although the ESTC is in this instance the single most valuable tool for tracking down copies, it alone would not help one locate all of the copies represented here. Thus, the printed sources remain quite valuable for locating copies. For example, the National Union Catalog reported the largest number of American copies out of all of these resources. Although it listed only one Huntington copy rather than two, it listed every other American copy except for the one at Illinois. And the National Union Catalog remains a valuable resource not just for tracking down specific copies, but also for learning about the existence of editions. Some people might assume that with the emergence of OCLC, the National Union Catalog is not worth checking. But in fact, two recent studies have shown that about 25% of the imprints in the National Union Catalog pre-1956 imprints are not in OCLC or Rillin. 25% of the imprints are not there. So here's my plea to librarians out there. I know that the 754 volumes of the National Union Catalog take up a lot of shelf space, but please don't get rid of this valuable source. The two oldest sources, the original STC and Greg's bibliography, contain information not found anywhere else. Only in the original STC would we find that a copy belonged to John L. Clausen, a noted book collector from Buffalo. Greg's bibliography is one of the few sources to indicate the states of the title page and the presence of leaf before. Therefore, he remains the main source for specific bibliographical information about these copies. Locating copies is important in part because a particular copy of a book sometimes allows us to reconstruct an especially interesting story. And so it is with the BL copy filmed and digitized for Ebo. But this story is not explained in Ebo, ESTC, or any other online resource that I'm aware of. You'll recall that a distinctive feature of that BL copy is that it lacks leaves B1 and B4. That a copy of this play lacking leaf B4 would also lack leaf B1 is not surprising because the two leaves are conjugate that is, they were originally joined together. 
And when one leaf of a conjugate pair is removed, it's likely that the other leaf will become loose and be lost. But something else happened to leaf B1 of this particular British Library copy. If we look at the end paper facing the title page in the Ebo images, we see a handwritten note, which despite the faintness of the image, appears to begin with the words, B1 stolen. The image from the file I downloaded over six years ago is far more legible. B1 stolen now in Ashley 541. Some of you may have figured out the rest of the story because the conjunction of the word stolen with reference to Ashley might call to mind one Thomas J. Wise, the famous bibliographer, collector, forger, and thief. (laughs) Wise's activities as a forger were memorably exposed by John Carter and Graham Pollard in their superb work of bibliographical detection, which they supplied with the wonderfully dry title, An Inquiry into the Nature of Certain 19th Century Pamphlets. Almost two decades after Wise's death, David Foxen, then assistant keeper at the British Museum, discovered that Wise had systematically stolen over 200 leaves from the British Museum copies of pre-Restoration English plays. Wise stole these leaves to perfect or complete his own imperfect copies, some of which he then sold to the American collector John Henry Wren. Wren's copies are now in Texas. The other copies formed part of Wise's outstanding literature collection known as the Ashley Library, hence the reference to an Ashley copy. The Ashley Library was purchased by the British Museum after Wise's death, (laughs) thus enabling Foxen to compare the mutilated copies with those Wise had assembled. Having compared this handwritten note with other samples of Foxen's handwriting, I can verify that Foxen wrote this comment as shown by the rest of it, which reads DFF, Foxen's initials, and 11 slash 56. November 1956, the date he wrote this note. For those curious to learn more about Foxen's discoveries, you should consult his pamphlet, Thomas J. Wise and the Pre-Restoration Drama, A Study in Theft and Sophistication, (laughs) which contains a brief remark about this copy of the Temple of Love. So the origin of all this is that Wise's copy originally lacked leaf B1. According to Foxen, around the year 1900, Wise exploited his access to the British Museum books and likely likely took home the British Museum copy, ripped out leaf B1 from it. He didn't cut it, he ripped them out. And then added that leaf to his own, perfecting his copy as a result. He then returned the defaced copy to the British Museum. By the time Greg recorded his information, he noted that one of the British Museum copies lacked leaf B1, but he did not know why. Nonetheless, Greg unwittingly became Foxen's collaborator. 
because once Foxen made his initial discovery of these thefts, he consulted Gregg's bibliography, noted every imperfect British Museum copy that Gregg had listed, and then checked each of those copies for evidence of theft. A fascinating piece of bibliographical detection and one facilitated by Gregg's detailed descriptions. And although the Ebo images help point us toward this story, though not that helpfully anymore given the faintness of the currently available images, the records in Ebo and ESTC do not in any way allude to Wise's activities. All of this is part of the curious history of this particular copy, the copy that just happened to have been filmed and then digitized. Our survey of the Temple of Love has encompassed the edition's original printing and publication, its physical makeup, and its survival in currently known copies. We have seen how this edition has been represented in bibliographical records, both in print and online. And we have learned that all of these records are, to some extent, incomplete. It is time to draw some larger lessons from this survey. I shall offer three of them. The first lesson is that, despite certain definite advancements on the digital front, we are still catching up to the bibliographical knowledge that was attained decades ago. As I think should be clear, Greg's bibliographical description of this play is far more learned than anything in Evo, ESTC, or any other online resource that I have found. These online resources point back to Greg's bibliography, but they do so in a neutral way, such that few novice users would be tempted to find out what he knew. The discipline of bibliography is based on the premise that we are collectively building on previous knowledge toward a more complete understanding. But when online resources are incomplete or inaccurate, and when such incompletions or inaccuracies could be easily remedied by consulting what is already known elsewhere, the progress of the discipline is impeded. The second lesson is that the benefits of having access to digital images of books is counterbalanced by the poor quality of those images, the incomplete processing of these images, and the at times incomplete contents of the copies being digitized. I would rather have access, have access to these digital images than to nothing at all, but I find it disheartening that these images, especially the ones currently available, are so inferior to what exists in microfilm, as poor as those films sometimes are. If it will cost too much to redo these images, then at the very least, users should be directly informed about their inadequacies. The third and most important lesson is that the current situation can be improved. Michael introduced this week by urging us to consider the men and women who interact with material texts for the purpose of making meaning. This example of the Temple of Love furnishes many examples of such interactions, some of which occurred quite early in this book's history, such as the changes to its title page and the cancellation of a leaf. In contrast to those authorized actions, we have Wise's theft. We also have the patient and meticulous bibliographical investigations conducted by Gregg and Foxen 
two major figures in this field. They too made meaning, creating order out of chaos, rejecting confusion with replacing confusion with genuine knowledge. We should take inspiration from the great bibliographical accomplishments of the past. So much outstanding, outstanding work has been done, and we are all the beneficiaries of that work. As we look forward in the 21st century and beyond, we see that we have a great legacy to build from and a lot of work to do. One of our tasks is that of synthesis, of bringing together the wealth of already acquired bibliographical knowledge, a task that will have to be a collaborative venture. And that task will itself prompt new questions and answers and methods, just as has always happened with bibliography. The acts of Thomas J. Wise, for example, as despicable as they were, prompted the discovery of new bibliographical techniques for detecting forgery and theft. Much of this effort will and should be carried out online. As critical as I have been of EBO and the ESTC, I recognize that only online resources can offer us the opportunities for the collaborative construction of the kinds of accessible databases that we need. We have become accustomed to the idea of the World Wide Web, and we should recall the rich metaphorical implications of that word, web. The internet offers the opportunity for connections to be made from otherwise disconnected sources of information. This is what I have tried to model today, because none of the existing online resources makes those connections. Instead, what we have too often are disconnected threads in the absence of a connecting hub. I think that collectively we have the knowledge and the passion and the, des and the desire to work together, so perhaps what we need most of all is the appropriate infrastructure. For English books before 1801, the basis for that infrastructure is the ESTC, which has been built over the last few decades edited and made freely available. Despite the criticisms I have offered today and in a recent article, I recognize that the ESTC is an extraordinary resource that has been created by dedicated men and women. The ESTC is now in a transitional phase that I hope will result in it being opened up more widely to the bibliographical community. A current proposal would grant ESTC accounts to scholars and other qualified persons so that they could post publicly viewable corrections and comments that I hope would appear alongside their names. This limited form of crowdsourcing could help disseminate bibliographical knowledge in a responsible and efficient way. I referred earlier to, bibliograph to bibliographers as among those men and women who make meaning through their interactions with material texts. This is where all of you come in. We need, to, we need to harness the learning of qualified experts to correct and supplement the records of the ESTC and other resources like it. ESTC records contain many errors. They are incomplete and out of date. In fact, the ESTC has never been up-to-date to current knowledge. There are still items in Foxen's catalog of English verse that do not appear at all in the ESTC. Foxen's catalog was published in 1975. 
There are so many aspects of ESTC records that could be improved, information about attribution, publication dates, paper, copyright, prices, advertisements, relevant published research, the locations of copies, and the contents of those copies. Links could be added to other online resources, more and more of which are emerging every year. Note that this example of the Temple of Love just scratches the surface regarding all the potential improvements that could be made to the ESTC. This is one edition represented by one ESTC record out of almost half a million records for who knows how many millions, well, a million copies of books. We need a small army to carry to uh, work on the ESTC over a long time. So I hope that the ESTC can move forward with their proposal, and I hope that we can join in this experiment and explore exactly what bibliography might become in the digital age. Thank you. which deals with ECHO, which is the 18th century collections online, works actually fairly closely with ESTC now to get updated information from the ESTC. Um, I don't know that there's anything... I don't know the relationship. I mean, it's a, it's a little bit surprising, of course. Well, maybe to step back, here's, I think, what presumably happened is that the STC and then the revised STC and then the WING catalog form the basis for the EBO records, and then those form the basis for the uh, sort of retrofitted ESTC once they went backward. Uh, I don't know what happened. David maybe does know what happened. Yeah, But I think Peter Blaney's comment about the fact that the Ebo records are actually very flawed, uh, he made that, you know, that comment was published in 2005. So clearly in the intervening time, I guess, I can't remember when the retro conversion happened, but um, they, hadn't, uh, they haven't improved the accuracy of the Ebo records that are now in the STC, and uh, who knows when that will happen. Yeah, then. I guess one thing that I think is always important to remember about the ESTC, well, all of these large-scale projects, and the ESTC is the one I'm most familiar with, is that um, lots of lots of what we see there is what was um, sort of amenable to machine processing, right? and and so 
um, the absence of the copy-specific information in ESTC, uh, or, or the, the absence of um, any indication of e in ESTC of which copy was, was scanned in Echo or Evo, my understanding is it's because when you ask Gail what copy did you microphone, did you know, UMI microphone or UMI, yeah. years ago, unaccountably, they don't know anymore. And, and so, I mean, it's, it's this, there, there are these frustrating gaps that are often sort of decades old and, and right. propagated through many, many different media. That's why I think your, um, your call for a, a, an army of uh, sort of volunteers is, is you know, stirring. Uh, and, 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 and Ben has, has done a lot for this. I mean, people should yeah, know that. I, so. Mostly, I just, you know, I've been saying, who's with me? answer to that is that probably a lot of it is because scholars and even maybe more importantly scholarly societies have decided to be very passive and not get involved. I mean uh, the ESTC originally had a kind of a cooperative scholar librarian venture and for whatever reason it became really more of a librarian and cataloger uh, venture and you're referring to the details of uh, copy specific details uh, that varies, of course, now in ESTC. It depends a great deal on the libraries. I mean, if you use ESTC on a regular basis, pretty quickly I think you'll discover that the Folger and the Huntington, for example, often have very detailed, rich uh, comments about copies. Um, other libraries are still in the so-called not verified category, meaning they think it's there, but they actually don't know. So scholars have, I think, been a little bit too much on the sidelines. Uh, and therefore the people organizing these things have either been in the cataloging world or in the commercial realm. And to some extent maybe we would group Google with that, although the relationship to sort of commerce is complicated, but let's face it, they're doing, they're, they're generating hits in a way that benefit Google, and I mean we've talked about this before, it's astonishing, I mean, I'm sure probably everybody who's a cataloger or a librarian is, is still appalled by this, but think about all the money Google threw at the Google Book project and as far as I'm aware, they did not hire a single cataloger. Can you imagine? I mean, I mean, they had enough money to hire a ton of catalogers to actually at least at the minimum trace. Well, they, they, they where they do? Oh, is that right? I, I, I well, know one, to, to trace where these books came from. So I think scholars bear a lot of responsibility going forward to trying to do things. But I think starting from scratch is just way too much. It'd be too daunting. We know that if this army is going to travel, it will travel on its stomach. <laughs> we know that you will need to be properly victualized. 
and um, perhaps even, like the British Navy, have your ration of rum. <laughs> These comestibles are available to you in the basement of Alderman. But before you flee to the reception, we would like to present Steve Tarion with a little token of our thanks, a copy of the poster, and a thank you note from the Rare Book School staff. And please join me in thanking Steve so that the conversation might continue down in the assembly area of Rare Book School and Alderman Library. <laughs>